Hey, hi there. Have a seat. You're in the right place. I'm Dawn Scannell, and welcome to From Mindfuck to Mindset, where we kick bullshit to the curb and get clear on what we want and where we're going. So pull on your sassy pants. And as my good friend Marshall said, you own it. You better never let it go. You only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. The opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Wise words, my friends, wise words. Buckle up. All right. Oh, hey, friends. Welcome back. This is episode 13 and not unlucky at all. Um, Today, we are having one of the more beefy, really important conversations, I feel like. Um, Not that I don't feel like all my conversations are important. That's kind of the deal. Um, But this is about somebody, Michael, who will introduce himself in a second, who works with the homeless every day. He works with people who are struggling with addiction every day. He is out on the street trying to trying to make things better, trying to make things right, trying to make a difference, trying to spread a little more love. Michael, tell us who you are all the time. Hey, I'm uh, I'm Michael Nolan in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I am the founder of a nonprofit organization called Just Love More. And uh, our primary focus as a nonprofit is to provide compassionate support to people who are affected by addiction. And that includes, uh, as, as anyone who's watching this would know, you don't have to be addicted to be affected by addiction. So, you know, myself, if, you know, if, I'm, if I'm addicted to a substance, everyone in my circle is affected by that too. So um, that's the that's the very short version in in that I work with people who themselves are you know dealing with addiction, but I also do work, especially with counseling, um, the people who are in the periphery, who are who are affected by it, but are not necessarily themselves the person who is faced with their own addiction. Right, and it's always a journey, right? Like when I met you. God, I was, I'm really trying to pin it down because I feel like it's got to be somewhere between 12 or 13 years now, right? It was, it was at least 12 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when we collided on the internet, I don't even remember how, I think it was probably through the people that were into organic gardening at the time. I'm pretty probably. sure that was the beginning of it. Um, but I will tell you, my audience that Michael really is truly part of my soul family, right? Um, I'm going to tell you that Michael has suffered great loss, but he's somebody who's never lost his compassion, his empathy, or his zest for life. So when I went through my loss, I was literally in my new tub that I had done at the Twirly Mountain, the soaking tub that, oh my God, between dancing and that tub, that's where all my healing came from. Um, I messaged Michael on Facebook and I said, hey, would if you don't have a problem with it, could you send me your cell number in case I ever wanna like reach out to you in a moment of, I don't know, great joy, or you know, I have some great news, or I just need you know somebody to, um, hold the line for me for a minute. And he 
sent me his number and I texted him right back and I said, Hey, I met a boy 40 years ago. Um, but Michael was, <laughs> Michael was my first person that I told that to. Um, and it was directly related to the fact that he had known great loss and did not stop living. Um, I was afraid to tell anybody in my family. So he was my testing zone. <laughs> and thank you for that. You're still my testing zone. <laughs> there you go. You know, I, I actually wanted, I want to touch on something that you're, you're kind of giving me credit for something that I don't feel like I deserve credit for. Um, and because, because you're saying that I faced great loss and I did not lose my compassion. That's not entirely the case. Ooh. So, um, so short explanation to what to what Don's talking about here. Um, I lived in New York City during 9-11 and uh, lost several people that I was close to because I worked um, on a consulting basis with NYPD and uh, New York Fire. So I knew several of the first responders who lost their lives and I lost a loved one that day. Um, and to get to the point about about I didn't lose my compassion. That's not true. I was I was there in New York working with suicide prevention at the time. So I had I had compassion. But it wasn't until weeks later when I really processed my own personal loss on that day. And the person in my life at the time who was the most special person, most important you know, human being in my world was gone. And he represented the epitome of unconditional love and compassion to me and to everyone who knew him. And so in the weeks that followed that loss, I struggled a lot. And the conclusion that I came to kind of, kind of comes full circle with where we are now because that loss led me to realize, well, he's gone now but he left a legacy behind of unconditional love and unbridled compassion. And I have to honor that legacy and his memory by carrying that forward. So, so kind of subconsciously, I tell people that I felt like I not only had to be a good person and do good things for myself, but I had to make up for the many years that he's not here to do it as well. So, so that, the compassionate side of, of me that, that you met, you know, 12, 13 years ago, Don, was the direct result of those losses. It wasn't, it wasn't in spite of those losses. So I just, I, I thought it was an important distinction to make because, because you can't, you can get lost in loss. You can lose yourself yes. completely, or you can use those opportunities to, to grow and to actually find a more true version of yourself. Absolutely. Oh my God, that resonates so hard with me. Absolutely. Um, and, and really, you know, as being the person left behind, no matter how it happens, when your person um, is gone, being the person left behind, there's so many things to deal with. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> if you cannot just come to the place where, but I'm still here, I, I can't give up. It was like right. that that would be like the worst possible thing I could do for them <laughs> is to give right. up. They would not want that. They would they, they would hate that. <laughs> so yeah. So now the work that you do, mm -hmm. 
there's not a lot of us who can even begin to believe that we could do it. I know I couldn't. I know I sure. could. Um, I wouldn't know how to let it go. I would carry it 24 seven. How? Do you That's know? a challenge. So I guess I, sh I guess I should start by explaining. Um, not only do I have the nonprofit Just Love More, um, and Just Love More, the focus, as I said, is specific to working with people affected by addiction. Um, as as a natural progression of that, very early on, after I formed the nonprofit, um, the big, the biggest portion of of the work started gearing itself toward people who were dealing with homelessness and poverty, because there, that is a, a demographic that is um, that is greatly impacted by addiction and uh, medical needs, unmet mental health needs. You know, there's there's a variety of things that that all kind of um, spiral out out from that, you know, from homelessness and addiction. So that was the work that I've been doing nonstop. I did it for two years, entirely self-funded um, once I started the nonprofit. Um, and then I got really tremendously lucky. Uh, and I was contacted by an agency here in Atlanta that has been doing direct uh, social service outreach work with the homeless community in Metro Atlanta for more than 10 years. And they approached me and said, hey, we've got this position for this grant and we think you would be a really good fit. Would you take a look? And so I did. And long story short, I began working with this organization uh, called In Town Collaborative Ministries in August of last year, beginning of August. And I manage a federally funded grant. Um, it's a, called GBHI grant, Grants for the Benefit of Homeless Individuals. And it's funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, Mental Health Services Administration. So my grant program allows me to enroll people who are experiencing homelessness, chronic homelessness, number one. Um, they also have to have a problem either currently or they're in recovery from a problem with drugs or alcohol, some sort of substance issue. Um, and most of them also are faced with um, mental health issues as well. And so that the, the standout for me, the reason that that coming into this position was so important for me is because for the most part, when you're dealing with homeless outreach um, anywhere in the country, but especially here in Atlanta, um, in-Town Collaborative Ministries is the largest homeless services organization in, in Atlanta doing outreach. But the case management um, for homeless outreach focuses on housing. And I understand housing first is important because if you get someone into stable housing, then it's a lot easier to deal with medical issues, mental health issues, substance issues. You've got some stability involved. Um, but there was a cutoff. So when a case manager would get housing for one of their clients, they would exit them from their program. And so, and while there was after, we all were doing aftercare 
but there was not there was nothing formal saying okay you stay with them to make sure that they're connected to the you know to what they need after they get housed and it was really important to me that whatever i was doing empowered me and supported me in doing the aftercare because when you're dealing with people who themselves are faced with recovery from an addiction of any sort it's the aftercare and the continued support that makes all the difference it's not it's not just waking up and saying i'm not going to use anymore i'm not going to take another drink that's an important day and that's an important step but it's what happens when you've done your first 30 days when you've made it to 90 days when you made it months and every every little change that happens in your life when you're dealing with recovery um, is another potential trigger and until we learn what those triggers are and learn how to control the way those triggers affects us uh, we need a ton of support and so i couldn't see myself housing someone and saying okay i've checked that box thank you you know you're no longer my client have a good day so this grant allows me to not only enroll them and and work with my dedicated incredible street medicine team um, twice a week i have a nurse practitioner a registered nurse a psychiatrist a substance abuse counselor and a peer support specialist all going with me doing street outreach medicine for you know, people experiencing homelessness. That is amazing. And, and we get to do that twice a week. So every Wednesday and Thursday afternoon, you know, we have rounds that we make and we see people regularly, um, people who have high blood pressure, um, who are living on the street, we can get them their medication on the, you know, on site. And uh, the same thing with, you know, people dealing with mental health issues. They can see the psychiatrist either in person or by telemedicine if she doesn't happen to be with us that week. And they can receive mental health medication on site. That is amazing. So uh, you're doing that on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Take us through like a, what that day really is like. I mean, you've touched on it briefly, you go out there, but what is it really like? All right, so so when we do a street medicine round, um, we have like each day we kind of have a, it's not a designated route, but we have certain major spots that we will hit because we have you know regular people there. So we will arrive um, Wednesdays, for example, we, we start at three o'clock in the afternoon. We go to one particular spot. It's our first spot. Um, and the our registered nurse and our nurse practitioner will um, see people who either need medical assessments or medical care. You know, they'll take like an intake. They'll do, you know, they'll do vital check. Um, if it's people who have who have been seen by us before, then it's just kind of checking in and you know checking their blood pressure checking their temperature you know, listening to their heart finding out what's going on checking in with them um if it's someone new then they they actually have to create a chart for them which they can also do on the fly you know while we're out there you know in you know 
in the street. Um, so they can be seen for, you know, for minor ongoing medical, you know, or, you know, maintenance medical things. Um, and if someone has um, a mental health condition and they are, they are receiving medication or ongoing treatment for that, they see our psychiatrist and um, she can do a full intake from, you know, having never met someone um, and even on the street. And that, this is one thing that, that still after this much time amazes me to be a part of is with this grant, we are, we're breaking new ground because this street medicine has existed. It, it existed prior to this grant, but the level to which we are able to do it and the, the speed with which we are able to make things happen, especially when it comes to the realm of people who are on the street who want to do something about their addiction. So um, last week, I believe, within the last couple of weeks, um, I broke the record because prior to that, it was, I think, the fastest we moved someone from the initial meeting into a rehab bed, inpatient rehab, was about three and a half weeks because cause there's a lot of moving parts. Right. Um, That's a long time in active addiction. It, it is. Um, but uh, I met someone two days before the new year and walked into my office and um, in seven days from the day I met that person, um, I was, had everything completely lined up, all of the medical tests, all of the assessments, all of the paperwork completed in seven days and had a rehab bed ready for that person. That's amazing. Um, which that that was groundbreaking for not only for my grant but for our area for for metro atlanta period because as as you addressed three and a half weeks an insane amount of time if if you walk up to me today and i meet you and i shake your hand and you say i'm addicted to heroin and i can't do this anymore i need help i'm desperate and I say, okay, well, I have this long checklist that we need to go, you know, we need to check all these boxes and it's going to, it's going to take a while. You know, I'm going to have to make appointments for you. You're going to have to have an appointment to go to our clinic and see this person and go, you know, you're going to have to go here and get a TB test and here to do this test. And while all of that, that process actually does exist and within within the program and this specific grant, it has allowed me to work diligently at streamlining this process so that in those critical situations that we can make a straight line you know, into, into that inpatient rehab. And seven days is not the best, you know. I I no. would love it to be faster than that, right? Because I would love seven times, days, right? But, how many times but can with, they change their mind in in a day? And often do, right? That, that yes, and I mean, and when you and when you also combine um, mental health in the mix 
when you have those co-occurring disorders of substance use disorder and a mental, you know, a mental situation that may or may not be addressed or medicated, um, then you're dealing with a complete unknown because one of the big concerns with treating someone who does have a mental diagnosis and a substance issue is that it takes a lot of work to decide and to discern, okay, this thing that this person did was fueled by their addiction. This thing that this person did was fueled by the mental, by the unmet mental health need. And it's difficult to treat addiction without treating mental health. In fact, you can't. You can't effectively put someone into recovery unless you're treating the whole person. Right. So if there is a chronic medical condition that, that is not being addressed, if there is a mental illness that is not being addressed and treated, if they are not really looking at the traumas that, that led to the addiction in the first place, then you're not really treating addiction. You're just saying, okay, well, you're not using, so you're in recovery. Right. And right. That's, that, that's not true. Abstinence is not recovery. Abstinence is important to many people, but there are a lot of people in those 12 meetings who are abstinent, who are absolutely miserable people. They are unhappy. Every day is horrible. And I've seen them for years. And so to me, there's a distinction with recovery that, and I feel like I'm jumping all over the place. So feel free to to push me in a straight line if you need to. But it's important for people to understand that abstinence is not all there is for recovery. That if you are not working on you, if you are, if your life does not feel better, if your body does not feel better, if your soul is not nourished and feeling like you are a better person in recovery, then you're not really recovering. You're just not using. Correct. And I will share just a little about, bit about my journey when I finally got my act together. That almost took 60 years. Um, so it was a year for me, the last Sunday of this past July that I stopped drinking. And um, I found out only this time, because I've stopped for periods of time before, but this time was completely different. Um, I found out that I have an immense amount of social anxiety. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who knew, right? Like um, the first, so my, I, I quit the last Sunday in July and September 18th is my birthday and we went out locally to watch this most kick-ass sax player in the world and we i chose a table at the back of the room so people wouldn't be behind me because i had learned that that was part of my problem right having people behind me and somewhere towards the end of the night all the kitchen staff came out and there was a hallway that emptied out in behind me and they all started being behind me like uh, like five people i'm saying them all five people it could have been 
for me, it felt like 500. And I, mm-hmm. I could n- not get out of my own way mentally. And I was like, I have, I, I need to go. I, I need to go. Sure. <laughs> and, sure. and it was like, that was the first time I under, I understood fully how much social anxiety I really had. It wasn't about, you know, I thought, oh, just being out in public in a crowded space like that. No, there are so many facets to it. And the one thing I learned right away was I have to speak up every time so that the person or persons with me really understand what's happening for me. They don't have to totally understand it, but they need to at least hear what I'm saying and what I'm feeling. Right. Right. You don't have to understand it, but please understand that my feelings are real right at this time. Like, so I, Mm -hmm. but if I don't keep doing that, I will be a person who's not drinking and not a person who's happy, who on any given day. Now I say, I cannot think of one damn thing that is so important it can put me back in that box where i'm using that alcohol again the way i was there's just nothing um right that doesn't mean i don't come up against walls and have to uh sit down and have a talk to myself but it's not very frequent but i have to keep talking to all my people absolutely and i and i think that's an important distinction too is that Recovery is not something that you do and you finish and you graduate and it's over. Recovery is every day because as humans, we are organic life forms that are continually evolving and growing and changing and moving. And everyone around us and everything around us is doing the same thing. And if we are unable to and bend and and go you know, and go with the wind sometimes, then we're not going to be successful in um, in recovery because I because again, I have to go back to I don't think recovery is successful if you are not finding and always striving to maintain your happiness. Does't mean you're going to be happy every day. That's no, that is no, there's a lot of days when you won't be happy. Especially, I mean, let's look at 2020. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, so I don't, I don't think that it's the, the sky idea that, that, you know, the world has to be, you know, all, you know, sunshine and roses. But if we're, if our goal every day is not to, to be happy, then why are we here? And, and to me that, that radiates outward because my personal goal is to be happy and to make sure that the people that I encounter on a daily basis experience compassion and unconditional love, no matter who they are, no matter what they're dealing with. Um, I want people to understand that I don't have to have ever met you. I don't have to know your name. I don't have to know your history or you know where you're from or how much money you make or anything else to love you. Um, that's my my um, loved one who passed away on 
the the way that he entered that he ended every telephone conversation that we ever had was he did he never said bye he always said and never forget that i love you and that phrase has carried me through the last god now it's 20 can you believe it's been 20 years i can't um, really but that that phrase has literally carried me through the last 20 years because the last words I ever heard from him were, and never forget that I love you. So how could I possibly forget that I was loved? Because that's the very last thing that they ever said to me. So I make an effort to use that phrase very often. In fact, I probably use it more than some people would like, but it's, it's critical to me that whether you understand it, whether you think I am completely batshit crazy, sorry, I said shit, maybe I'm, I'm going to offend oh, somebody. Oh, please. No, 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 no. But, <laughs> you know, what, whatever you think of me, I want there to be absolutely no doubt that I represent unbridled compassion and unconditional love, no matter who you are. And that kind of um, really fueled when, when my work really full on took um, the direction of working with people experiencing homelessness, because I, I was really, I had this um, emotional moment one day. It's, it's kind of difficult to explain, but I had this really intense personal moment when I was walking down the sidewalk and there was someone, and I'm probably gonna get emotional about this, so bear with me, but I was, I was walking down the sidewalk and I'd been doing you know, street outreach for a while, but I was walking down the sidewalk and there was this man sitting on the sidewalk, an older man, uh, long white beard, and he was holding up this little tattered cardboard sign and he spoke to me as I walked by and I didn't look at him. I walked by. I didn't make eye contact. I didn't acknowledge his existence. And it took me a little while, but that moment when I got back to my car that day um, and I sat in my car, I lost my shit. I'll just fell apart like that. And I realized that I had just acted as though another human did not exist. And all they were doing was trying to get me to acknowledge their existence. And that changed, that completely shifted my perception of people in general, not just um, the people in my life directly, not just the people who are, you know, on the street, but it, it was an effort for me that I wanted to make absolutely sure that if someone had an encounter with me, that they felt validated and acknowledged as humans. Uh, and that ended up leading me to, um, 
last year when when I was getting a lot of requests for, from people that were asking me to explain how I, you know, what is what is outreach to me? How do I do outreach? What is my philosophy? So I wrote a digital book. And the first thing that I was I was telling Dawn about this earlier, the first thing that I knew when I started to write this guide was the title. Because when people were asking me, you know, how do you do it? What's your philosophy? How do you how do you do outreach? And I and I said, it's really pretty basic. I walk out the door and I treat people like people. And so that so that outreach guide is called How to Treat People Like People. And it approaches everything from um, what to do before you go out to trying to do street outreach um, and what encounter. And then, then it even goes beyond that into um, the importance of language and acknowledging uh, things like I, I default to what's known as person first language. So I don't call you the homeless guy, you know, or that, you know, that those homeless people over there, I say you are a person experiencing homelessness, or you are one of my neighbors who is unsheltered. Uh, I refer to a, a person, I, I validate your humanity and your personhood before I straddle you with what is on your shoulders. So I don't call you an addict. I say you're a person faced with addiction or you're a person in recovery. You are not homeless. You're a person dealing with homelessness or poverty, or you, know, you are someone who is unsheltered. And so that's person first language is something that I explain as well, because I feel like if we default that way, then it's a lot harder to forget that person that we're walking by is a person. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it seems simple, but it is something that is programmed into a lot of us. And I challenge people to be aware as you're moving through the world. How many people do you make eye contact with? I, even, you know, even people who are just in the grocery store with you, do you go through and not acknowledge anyone? I think it's a habitual way to move through the world. Right. And what I challenge people to do, even so, I don't tell people that if you see someone, we call it flying a sign, if they're holding up a cardboard sign at the off ramp or if they're on the street corner holding up a cardboard sign, we call that flying a sign. Um, and when I see someone like that, for the most part, I don't give them money because I work in, in a field where I'm able to provide something for them. I keep snack packs in my car, which is essentially a bag that has some um, non-perishable food like uh, peanut butter crackers, um, pouches of tuna, um, uh, those little microwavable uh, ravioli meals, because those don't have to be cooked. They can be open and eat, eaten where they are. Uh, fruit cups, um, things like that, bottles of water. And so if I see someone that says that they're hungry, then I can give them one of those snack packs. And that also gives me the opportunity to find out 
who they are, what their story is. If if they're in a situation where they are on the street and they want help to be off the street, also an important distinction to make. There are a lot of people who are on the street by choice. And we cannot remove the dignity of, like, so let me back up. As, as housed, regular society people, yeah, who we live our lives day to day. We get up, we go to the grocery store, we go to the bank, we do all of these normal things. But that also skews our view about what is normal. And so there are people who simply, for whatever reason, for trauma, for mental illness, for any number of reasons, do not want to be housed. And so we cannot approach every individual like that as outreach workers saying, okay, what can I do to get you today? Right. That's not how I start. It, it may not make any sense at all to us, but they feel safer that way. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and it's Absolutely. not ours to understand. But this brings me to an important point that I'd like you to address, which is how do you stop that whole savior complex, that whole being married to the outcome of, oh, wait, I said all the right things. Why didn't it work? How, how do you keep how do you keep going? Right? Because I, I would, and probably most of us would feel like if you're not getting a win every day, you're failing. So how, how, how do you process that? Okay, so I should start by saying you just hit me right between the eyes, because I am a person who deals with high functioning anxiety. I am a serial overachiever. I, I run at an 11, seven days a week. And, and when I slow down, I, I actually get more anxiety if I slow down. So, so I kind of, I'm always doing something, I'm always moving. Um, so with that in mind, people who, who deal with this condition that I have, I'm always looking for the next success. And to make sure that that you know this it, it, it's all success driven, and and I had to rewire my brain over a long time to understand that any positive change is success. That my own barometer of success, which of course you meet someone who is in mental health crisis, who has unmet medical needs, who is addicted to something, who is also unhoused, you know, in the back of my mind, they need housing, they need medical care, they need, you know, and I have this list, these are what they need, but I haven't asked them what they need or what they want. And they're adults. And the, the most inhumane thing we can do to an adult is take away their right to choose the life that they want. And so to get back to your question, I am able to not always completely successfully at it, but I'm able to look at the big picture and 
see that, okay, when I met John on August 1st, he was in a complete mental health crisis. He couldn't even tell me his birth date. Um, he was completely blown out on, you know, on opioids. And yeah, and he had this, you know, major wound, infected wound on his arm for where he had been using injectable drugs. Um, and John, John's a hypothetical, by the way. Uh, and so what I, what I look at is in a perfect world, all of those things are going to be addressed very quickly. He's going to be healthy. He's going to improve and, you know, and we all live happily ever, ever after, you know, thanks Walt Disney. But in reality, that's not the way it works. So what I do is I talk to the person and I say, okay, I, I need to get a really good understanding of what we're facing. So I do an intake assessment and I find out what their medical issues are. Whether they want to deal with them or not, I, I dig in and say, okay, what's going on with you medically? Um, which my background as a, as a medic does help with that part. Um, and then I say, okay, let's talk about mental health. What have you been diagnosed with? Um, and then if there's not been a diagnosis, which happens quite often, you know, well, you know, where was the trauma in your life? You know, what, what happened in your life that greatly impacted you? Do you deal with depression? You know, are you sad more often than not? Do you deal with you know, a lot of stress, anxiety? Uh, because I need to know where we're starting if I'm going to ever figure out how to get where they want to go. So then we go to the substances. Find out, okay, what's your substance abuse history? What's your drug of choice? What was the first drug you used? How old were you? Why did you start using? Did you do it by choice? Did someone peer pressure you? Was it there? You know, and so I build an entire history of that person, of the whole person. I want to know their medical history, their mental health history, their substance history, their housing history. One of the most important parts of working toward getting someone housing, if that's what they want, is to establish their chronic homelessness status. So chronic homelessness means that someone has been on the street, unhoused for 12 months or more, or four or more times in the last three years. So I actually have a chart, um, a worksheet chart that I'll pull out and just hand it to them and it's got the last three years. So the one that I'm using right now is January through December, 2018 and 2020. And I say, okay, write down every time that you were in the hospital, every time you were incarcerated, every time you were you know, in an emergency shelter, write those down, tell me where they were and how long you were there. And because when you're working toward housing, sometimes you need to be able to verify that someone has been on the street that long. And so by knowing, okay, well, John told me he was incarcerated from January through May of 2019, I can go pull that record and say, here's proof he was incarcerated at this time. Um, here's proof he was in the hospital for two weeks. 
Here's proof that he was in the Salvation Army shelter, emergency shelter um, back in 2017 because it was so cold and he had nowhere to go. So by, by doing all of that, it gives me a realistic picture of what the person is faced with. And only at that point, only when I know what they're dealing with, do I ask them, okay, what do you want? What can I help you achieve that will improve your life? And to go back to that work, it's important for me to notice that the only criteria for someone to be in my grant is that they are homeless and that they are either currently or have been faced with an addiction to drugs or alcohol. Notice I did not say they have to want to stop using drugs or alcohol because that's not the way I work. I don't go to you, meet you, say, okay, well, you're, I just reversed your overdose for the third time in the last six months. You have to stop using because that's not my choice to make. I will say, okay, I'm, I'm really tired of saving your life. Could you please make better choices? You know, is there something we can do to help you use less or use, you know, in a, in a safer way? Um, but it's, a, it's an important distinction because I don't require someone to want immediately to go straight to rehab or, you know, go into a 12-step program because that's not for everybody. And I need, I need someone to do it because they want it and because it's, it's time for them. And if they feel pressured by me to make that to make that leap when they're not ready, it's not going to be genuine. It's not going to be complete, and it's not going to last. So how do you how do you stop yourself from being married to the outcome? I was I was getting to that point. It just <laughs> it was such a such a long long route to get there. I promise. Um, cause I don't, I, I don't just like to hear myself talk. I swear. No, so, no. so the, um, when it comes to the outcomes, what, <laughs> what I have to do no. exactly. So, um, but what I have to do is I have to do all of that background and then I say, okay, this is where we're starting. This is what you want. And third step is, okay, this is our game plan. This is our plan A. This is, this is how we're going to approach this to get to those goals that you want. Um, in working with the people that I work with, plan A often does not work. Um, plan A may not work because, the, because my client can't be motivated to show up to an appointment or just because at the last minute they changed their mind or because I couldn't make that magic happen. You know, with, right, I would imagine there's there's a lot of, even just with the plan A, um, they have to totally trust you before they move forward, right? Trust is absolutely paramount to the work that I do. So that's the reason if, if I approached you, I just met you, or even if I've seen you doing outreach you know, for a few months, but if we're having this, you know, this conversation and I'm talking about enrolling you in my program and working with you, I have to make sure from the outset that 
to whatever degree you're capable at that moment that you trust me because without trust there there I could not do what I do if people didn't trust me. Right, because there has to be so many times that people have come to them, right, where they're like, they think that this person's going to be the one that really does care enough to help me. And I can't imagine how many times they've been let down where somebody gets bored, right? Like, oh, this is my project of the month, right? I mean, I know you're working with an, an, org an organization, but you, you, there are people out there trying to, to help who are just doing it. Right. Right. And um, I'm actually working with three organizations now because oh I have my goodness. I have my nonprofit. I have Just Love More. I have my my agent, my social service agency in town collaborative ministries. And my grant work that that street medicine team I told you about, they're not part of of my social service work within town. They actually work with a medical services agency for low-income people in Georgia called Mercy Care. So, so I'm actually the, this you know, middle ground between two different agencies, taking all of the work that both of them do and, and kind of focusing that prism on, you know, on this community to get the best possible outcomes and the best possible um, resources. For these people but to get back to how i don't rest on the outcomes and how i don't um, get sad when those outcomes aren't what i want it's a matter of reminding myself every day with every single client and sometimes repeatedly in the same my expectations have nothing to do with this person. I cannot foist my expectations on this human being. My job is to get them where they want to be. And if that means that I have to make the same appointment to get a tuberculosis test five times, because they didn't show up any of those five times, then I need to make it a sixth time. Because when they come to me and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll say, okay, we'll make another appointment. Um, or when someone goes through, and this is actually a true story. When, when I put someone into an inpatient, a 90 day inpatient rehab program, and this individual did well and completed the 90 days and because because of um, the way the the housing program worked in this person's case, um, their housing was delayed by a couple of weeks. Um, they've actually got you know an apartment lined up, all of that you know was ready, but money was coming for the government, so it so it was delayed a little bit, and that affected the person. It triggered them. And they lapsed. They ended up, you know, they were finished with their 90 days, but they ended up using. And immediately, you know, fessed up to what they'd done. And you know, so I so I obviously my knee jerk is, oh, I'm let down. I'm sad. They failed, but they didn't fail. 
Right. They, they completed for, for the first time in their lives, they completed 90 days of inpatient substance treatment. And so that was not a fail. That was a success. That was a check mark. And I could not diminish that three months of success and the months that led up to it by saying, oh, well, they failed. You know, and and they spoke I'm out. I'm a failure. I'm done. Right. They could have kept quiet. They could have just mm -hmm. like moved on and kept using, but they they spoke it. Right. So right. So to and me, that, and that was also something that that was a growth. Yeah. You know, a growth point. So so anyway, to answer that that question that you asked like an hour ago, um, <laughs> the reason the reason that I'm able to continue is well the reason i'm able to continue is because there's work to be done the reason that i that i am not bogged down in not having non-stop success in every case is because that's not reality i am not successful every time i've set out to do something i fail every day in my own life. And I have everything going for me. I've got a well-paying job. I've got a great home. I've got, you know, insurance. I'm a white man in a country run by white men. You know, I've got all of, you know, everything is you know, handed to me essentially in that regard. Um, but I still fail. So, I'm able to continue because going back to the outreach guide, because I treat people like people and people are human. People are not always ready to do what they think they want to do. And that's not a personal attack on me. If someone decides that at the last minute that they're not ready to do this or to do that. So I continue because I work with people who need support. And sometimes all those people need is to know that I hear them and that I see them. And if they're not ready to change those certain things, they've spoken those things into existence. They, you know, they've acknowledged that they have these issues. And by by acknowledging them, they put them on the table. So that, that means they're not hiding it away from me. It's not something they're avoiding talking about. It's a conversation that we've had. And that means that at some point in the future, we can revisit that conversation when they're ready. And so I don't see the, the short-term shortfalls. I won't call them failures. Um, but the, the things that have not yet come to fruition, let's call them that. I don't see them as failures um, on my part or on the part of my, my clients or my, because this is very much a work in progress. We all are. That's the reason my, my caseload on my grant, I don't discharge them when they've got housing. I, I do this ridiculously long government interview every time I start an enrollment. And it's very invasive that I want to know all your details. I find out how many times they've used every 
drug they've used in the last 30 days. I ask not only how many times have you had alcohol in the last 30 days, how many times did you get drunk off alcohol? And when you got drunk, did it take five or more drinks? How many times have you had sex in the last 30 days? Of those times you had sex, how many were unprotected? How many times did you have sex with someone that you knew to have HIV? Or were they high? Or were they an IV drug user? Like I ask really personal questions, but I have built enough of a rapport with those people that they're comfortable sharing that information because they know the only reason I want that information is to be able to have a baseline that we can start from and say, okay, well, this is where you are now. I have no room to judge you because I've probably done worse in my life than you have. So we know where you started. Now we can figure out where you want to be and how to get there. So we've invested a lot of time talking about how we don't invest and get hung up by what seems like not getting the best outcomes. Talk about the real success stories for us because they're there too, right? Um, They may not be as, as many as we'd like, but they're happening. And tell us about those people because you post when people allow you to, you will post pictures that there was a guy that last week who was moving into a house and there was one post and I was like, Oh, look at him. I'm so happy for him. And then there was another one where I was like, he has the most beautiful smile. I mean, there was genuine joy and happiness coming out of this man's entire being. Um, And, and that made me ball like a baby. And I do almost every day. So (laughs) don't feel rained on. Um, So when it comes to the successes, and and there are many. There are actually a lot of successes that I don't talk about and that I can't talk. Um, but success can be anything from, I have a client who was diagnosed with cancer several years ago, who from that day forward has not been back to an oncologist because they are scared they don't want to know how bad it is because because everything in their life is bad um but in other areas of their lives they're starting to make progress they're starting to be willing to make you know incremental changes and i'm confident that there's going to come a day soon because we're talking about it now where they're gonna they're going to make an appointment and they go and we're going to find out what we're facing um I have a client who was chronically homeless for many years who had been diagnosed with hep C. Hep C is curable, it's treatable, but it is prohibitively expensive to treat hep C. I mean, you know, in the in the neighborhood of eighty to a hundred thousand dollars to treat hep C, and it takes two to three months. Um, but I have an older client who had been diagnosed, who is now successfully treated and cured of hep C. I have clients who have had medical care for the first time in their lives when we started working together. And I've a, a long list of people who have started their version of recovery, whether that 
meant going to an inpatient rehab, um, whether that meant doing um, what's called intensive outpatient treatment, whether that meant, okay, well, I'm just going to cut down and I'm going to start going to dinks. Their recovery is different for every person. Um, and all of those are successes. And then we get to the wonderful people who have helped me tick all of the boxes for them that are able to get housing, that are able to go from being on the street for years into permanent housing situations. Those, of course, are the big feel-good stories that, that everybody wants to see. And they do feel good because once they've got those keys in their hand, we look back and say, wow, do you remember last year when we met? How like you were almost not even alive and your medical care, you know, you've had, you've had two surgeries now in that time. You are getting disability, you know, your, your needs are being you know, addressed and met. And now you have your own apartment. Look at what we have you know, been able to accomplish because it was what you wanted to do. Yeah, because you were ready for these changes. So every one of those examples to me is a success worth celebrating. Even someone giving me the information I need to be able to order their birth certificate. You know, that that requires a level of trust. They're giving me very information about who they are, who their family was, where they were born, when they were born. And you know, so just a, establishing that trust and having something that that proves that that that, that person trusts me um, is something to celebrate. Right. So every day I have something to celebrate about this work that I do, even on the really shitty days. And there are a lot of really shitty days. There are long days that I come home feeling like an abject failure. Of course, it's those days when it's storming and, and, you know, my clothes are soaked and I've got the sniffles and, you know, somebody didn't show up and, oh, what, you know, life is tough. And then I'll get a text message from, you know, one of my people that just says, thank you for supporting me. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for being there. And that is why I'm able to continue doing the work that I do because I treat those people like people and the gratitude and the love and the appreciation that I get back from them is why I continue, even on the hard days, even on the days when we've lost someone, which happens. Um, that's, that's the only way I'm able to do what I do. Compassion can get you so far. But, right. if you, if it, but if it's not fueling my soul, then it's not sustainable. And it's the people that I work with who are keeping me going. So I think it's, I think it's um, really important because success at a wild level, but there are people who are making changes, little tiny changes that you're working with. And every single bit of that is part of their continuing success story right? Because you didn't just go from here to here. There's all the journey. Um, 
And it's it's a beautiful to remember and and look at it that way because for me, I get so caught up in the fact that I'm just, you know, uh, there's a reason Dawn can't do this work because if I'm not saving the world, I can't, I'm, I'm not doing it right. Um, but also treating people like people, I feel like that simple, simple place that you come from, from the get-go could be the only reason somebody decides to make a change. Absolutely. That reminder that I am here, I matter. And I think the the reason that, that that moment that I told you when I walked past the guy with the sign, um, the reason that that had such an impact on me is because sitting in my car that day, not only was I thinking, God, you're such an asshole. How could you just walk past a human and not even acknowledge their existence? But at the same time, my brain was also seeing the world from that guy's point of view and imagining how I would feel if I was in the middle of a sidewalk and the whole world was just moving past me as though I wasn't there. How could I have self-respect? How could I feel any self-worth? How could I feel any hope that things were going to get better if that's the way I was being treated by everyone around me? So that's the reason that relationship building is so critical and it's so important to me because I don't just want to help people get housing. I don't just want to help people get into recovery. I want to build relationships with people that help them heal from the traumas in their lives, to help them identify where their damage is and give them, hopefully, the opportunity and the tools they need to be able to grow from that point and, and heal their own, you know, their own traumas. Right. It's very empowering um, <clears throat> when when someone gets to that point and I'm talking on a personal level, you know, <laughs> when you do when you do allow yourself um, and you understand that you're not just fucked up. Right. There's a reason I'm fucked up. And um, mm -hmm. until you address those reasons as an adult, you can't change the things that happened to you as a child. Right. You had no control over what happened to you as a child, those damages, those traumas. But at <clears throat> at some point as an adult, you got to say, OK, well, that was what I was dealt. Uh, how do how do I put this back in a neat place and take care of it so I can put it over here and I can go on and live a life. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing I don't want to let go of is we encounter people every day, the rest of us, right? How, how do we, I wrestle with it every time I go into town and I'm going out and about, there's a, one corner where there's always one or two guys with their signs and their backpacks and they stand really close to your car. And I'm afraid to make eye contact because then I think, oh, okay, now I have to do something for them or what are they gonna expect or like, but it, it's a constant inner battle because it's like, I, I don't want to ignore them. So what, what can we do? What should we be doing? So 
it's it's going to depend on every situation. Like the situation you just described um, is a very close proximity thing, and that that could call into question, especially um, with women who might be alone in the car. Um, in those cases, I think your safety needs to be the first thing in your mind. And if you are feeling unsafe in a situation like that, then you should not do anything. Okay. If for any, if for any reason you feel that your own safety might be at risk, you should not do anything because that is introducing trauma into your life. And you don't need to compound your own trauma to help to alleviate someone else's. Thank that's you. Not, for, that, thank you for that. That is not how that works. That's not how it works. We have to, the old saying, put on your own mask before, before you help somebody else with theirs. It's because you put on your mask, you know, the airplane thing, you put on your mask. So oxygen is flowing, oxygen is flowing because without oxygen flowing to your brain, you're not thinking clearly. So if you take that forward to working with people, if you're not exercising self-care, if you're not looking out for your own triggers and your own traumas and taking care of yourself first, you don't have enough oxygen to your brain. And that means you're not thinking clearly enough to take care of yourself and someone else too. So you have to focus on your own safety and your own well-being first. Uh, that being said, if you encounter someone and you are and you do feel safe, uh, safe enough to acknowledge or approach them, then to me, the most important thing that I do, whether I have anything to give to someone or not, is to acknowledge their existence. Make eye contact with them. And again, if they're aggressive, that's a safety issue. Consider that before you do anything. If you feel safe, acknowledge their existence. Whether you plan to give them money, anything else, um, just acknowledge them and you know and treat them like you're like you're greeting the cashier at the grocery store when you're checking out you know you you're passing someone you don't know you can you know you can just acknowledge them and let them know that that you see them and you and you recognize their existence as being valid um beyond that like i mentioned before we have you know snack packs that that we create um non-perishable food uh, things like tuna in pouches, snack crackers, um, snack like breakfast snack bars, um, juice boxes, um, pop top cans. That's that's a big thing. If you if you want to if you want to offer food, if you're going to give something in a can, make sure it has a pop top because people on the street don't have can openers, so they don't have a way to cook food. So make sure that you're thinking about that way, but keep a bag or two, you know, just, just a grocery bag with two or three items in it. And if someone, you know, if you see someone holding up a sign that says that they're hungry, or if someone approaches you and says, Hey, do you have two, you know, two bucks? I'm hungry. Then you can, you know, reach into your back seat and say, well, I don't have any cash, but you know, I do have this, you know, and I hope you have a good day. What, and what other things could you have? Um, like food's important, but they're also on the street and, you know, hygiene. Um, so I always, and I should preface this by saying I drive a Mini Cooper. 
and <laughs> and my car is constantly full of things that I'm that I'm always carrying around for you know for things like this. Um, those snack packs, uh, hygiene kits, um, which hygiene kit can be as simple as a, a little bar of soap and a toothbrush. You know, some it could be very basic. Um, it could be even more elaborate if if you want to get more elaborate with it. Wet I know wipes? a lot of people. Um, wet wipes are good. Uh, wet wipes are very good. Um, any anything that that is included in in my hygiene kits are things that don't require um, electricity or water or you know, things like that. So, you know, I have soap and toothbrushes and toothpaste and deodorant and you know, wet wipes. I, I even have, I found, I can't think of the name of the company right now, but I found a company uh, last year that has these um, washcloths, the disposable washcloths that the cloth itself has, has a soap in it so you wet you wet the cloth and then you can you can clean your body but you don't have to rinse it oh amazing it's, so rinse is not required so it's disposable um they can it's single use so all they have to do even if they can just you know pour a little bit of water out of a bottle of water onto this they can use it you know to clean themselves um and so i so i have those as well uh beyond regular hygiene items um the two things that i never leave home without that are always in my car i get the little um cheap disposable uh rain ponchos the kind that they that they hand out when you go to, to sporting or, or musical events outside um those i always have and socks oh socks yeah Socks is one is probably one of the most requested, you know, items, you know, from people who are living on the street because they a lot of them don't you know change clothes often at all and they're on their feet getting everywhere that they go. So if they if they have you know clean socks you know to change to that makes them feel a lot better. So and and if it's rainy you know here in Georgia it rains all the time. And if you get soaked and your feet are soaked and you're still walking, you're going to get blisters. Your feet are going to be in horrible shape. You're opening yourself up to all sorts of you know, possible conditions. So, so socks is another thing that I always you know, have available as well. Wow. Okay. And I, will, I do want to make one other point about something that, that can be done, even if you don't want to give something to someone. Um, wherever you live, you can do some research. Google is your friend. Find out where the resources for homeless, for the homeless community are in your area. Um, find out where shelters are. Find out where the soup kitchens are, you know, where people are doing food pantries. And just do that research. Don't, and don't stop with looking it up on the internet. Send an email. Make a phone call. Have a conversation with these people. Find out exactly what they do and make a little list um i i always have a list um in fact i will 
I can show you an example. This is this is coming out of my cargo pocket right now. I I have this little notebook that I always carry with me, and one of the things that I have in my notebook is this little piece of paper that says for questions about case management and housing, please visit in town collaborative ministries, the address for our office, when to go to the office, because this is for those questions. Um, my office has a case manager doing that work on Tuesdays from nine to 12. So I printed up a bunch of those and I just keep them in my pocket because I get asked every day, can you help me? So if you just have something like that in your pocket, if someone, you know, if someone says, you know, I'm hungry, I need help. You can say, hey, well, you know, this, you know, this place offers a soup kitchen Monday through Friday, you know, and this is, this is how you get there. That's another thing that you can do, even if you don't want to carry things around, you know, in your car or give someone money. That's another way that you can directly help someone by directing them to the services that are available in your local area. That's amazing. Um, what other, what's one last whatever you'd like to leave people with, whether it be about what they can do, about what you do, about the people? What, what, what would you like to hmm. sum up for us? Um, well, first off, I, want, I, do, I do want to make the point that I mentioned that, that outreach guide that I had, that I wrote last year. Um, if anyone is interested in, in getting a copy of that outreach guide, I don't have it published where people can download it, but if they will email um, us at outreach at justlovemore.org, um, I, will, I will send you a digital copy of, of the outreach guide. And if you ever have any questions, you can reach you know, back out to the same email address and I'm happy to answer those. Um, but I think what I would like to leave people with that will encompass every bit of this and, um, and make it personal for every single person, whether it's someone watching this video or someone that you're going to encounter on the street. Um, there's, there's this disconnect that we have in the West and it's, that all of our parts are disconnected. You go here for medical care. You go here for your spiritual edification. You go here for mental health care. You go here for substance abuse care. But all of those things are you. And if you aren't seeing all of those as integrated, and if you're not working on all of those things, then whatever you're dealing with, you're not going to heal from. And the last thing I have to say is a catchphrase that I came up with when I started doing this work, because I had someone walk up to me one day that was very, um, using very dangerous language about, about people who deal with addiction. You know, they were throwing, you know, crackhead and junkie and, you know, and all, all of this kind of stuff that's very damaging and hurtful and serves no valid purpose. And I turned around to a person that would use language like that in public one day. And I said, you know, we're all recovering from something. I said, addiction from drugs or alcohol, they don't have a monopoly on recovery. And 
If you have ever had trauma in your life, if you have ever had a physical injury in your life, if you have ever been affected by mental illness or abandonment or anything else, you have something to recover from. We are all recovering from something. And if we think about it from that perspective, it's a lot easier to go back to what I said about the title of my, of my outreach guide, treat people like people. That's all I got. So I think that's more than enough. Um, <laughs> and, and everybody can start from there. Right. We don't have to buy anything. We don't have to take a yes. special class. We can all go out and just treat everyone that we meet with a little bit of kindness and a little bit of love in our heart. Right. We can all afford to do that. And the more you and do I think, it. <laughs> I think even I mean, yes, we can all afford to do that. But to take it a step further. I don't think we can afford to not do it. I think if we look at the condition of our country, specifically in the last few years, and if we look at the world in, you know, in this pandemic that you know, we've all been slammed by in the last year, we can't afford to continue without compassion and without genuine kindness and understanding the difference between being nice and being kind. Being nice makes you feel better. Being kind makes everyone feel better. So I just, I feel like I don't have a choice. Like when, when you asked me earlier, how do I keep going when, I, when I'm not always a success? I don't have a choice. I, I wake up every morning, seven days a week, feeling like I am one of the most blessed people in the world to be able to do this work that I do. As hard as it is, as heartbreaking as it is sometimes, I am lucky as hell because this is my passion and I get to do this every single day. And I get to talk to people and encourage other people, like, like we're doing right now, encouraging other people to have a better understanding of the people around them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I keep having these conversations, because if we can just change the perspective of one person and go, oh, wow, I never looked at it like that and make them think a little bit. Winning. Win win. <laughs> winning. <laughs> Thank <Hashtag> you. Winning. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being willing to come on and have this conversation with me and us. Um, Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And if anybody needs a personal connection to Michael, hit me up and I will give you do the introductions through messenger, email, whatever we need to do. We'll get you there. All right. Thanks, Dawn. Thank you. Everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for joining us today on From Mindfuck to Mindset. Please hit that subscribe button. You can also find me on YouTube under Dawn Scannell, and you can subscribe there too. You can watch me as well as listen. How cool is that? So you can also find me on Facebook. Into the search bar, just type in the at symbol, no bullshit reset, and that'll take you to my page. 
to find my community group. It's called Fabulously Flawed. So if you put that in the search engine, you will find the group and you can apply to join that group. It's a group of lovely ladies and we're all trying to get our shit together in there. So come join us. You can never have too much shit. All right, where else can you find Dawn Scannell? You can find me under dawnscannell.com. That's my website, and I've always got some freebie or another that I'm giving away on there, so go get yourself some of that. Until next time, 